Welcome to Technoviews Podcasts, a new series of online interviews with major figures in humanities and social sciences on topics at the intersection between technology, society and culture. My name is Gonzalo Santos. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Hong Kong. The subject of today's podcast is genocide and technologies of violence. Our guest today is Dr. Fazil Moradi, a member of the Law Organization Science and Technology Research Network and an associate at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology. Hi Fazil, welcome to Technoviews. Hi Gonzalo, nice to be with you. Fazil received his PhD in Social Anthropology from the University of Halle-Wittenberg in Germany with a dissertation on the translations of the al Anfal. Uh, genocide in Kurdistan, Iraq. His ethnographic in inquiries are located in the Middle East, Africa and Europe, covering modernities, infrastructures of violence, genocide and femicide, bureaucracy, effects of chemical weapons, ecological harm, global drones, technoscience of evidence and testimony, aesthetics of violence, translation and hospitality. He is currently completing a monograph entitled Hosting Genocide, Femicide, on the living on of the untranslatable in Kurdistan, Iraq. So, for today's podcast, I would like to start a conversation about, about genocide. I mean, you've been doing fieldwork in Iraq for quite some time. I think you started that in the early uh, 21st century. Really, yeah. uh, so it's been more than ten years now. Why genocide, Fazil? Well, that's uh, that's a very uh, important question. Not of not only of our time, twenty first century, but also twentieth century and histories back. So, in order to respond to you, I would like to uh, to to return to uh, to the time that the the, the term was coined. But before doing so, we can, it's better to return to uh, 1933. In his uh, proposal of 1933, Raphael Lemkin, a Polish uh, uh, lawyer who, uh, who simply escaped and survived the Holocaust that was taking place in, in Europe, he explains what he calls two uh, new international crimes. The first category is acts of barbarity, a translation of the Greek word barbaros, which according to Limkin both targets uh, an individual as a member of a collectivity and the entire collectivity and its social order. The acts are considered to be exterminatory as they encompass massacres, pogroms, actions undertaken to ruin the economic existence of the members of a collectivity, etc. In threatening, to quote him, the very basis of harmony in social relations between particular collectivities, the acts of barbarity also pose transnational uh, danger. The second category of Lemkin's international crimes are acts of vandalism, a translation of the Latin word vandalos, which, to quote him, take the form of systematic and organized destruction of the art and culture of heritage in which the unique genius and achievement of a collectivity are revealed in, in, in fields of science, arts, and literature. Due to lack of international attention and the analyzing play, uh, plan of the Nazi, uh, Nazi state, Lemkin shifted his legal naming by coining another, another name, uh, uh, which is genocide. 
He combined two separate nouns from two different languages. The Greek word genos, in this case meaning uh, race, tribe, or people, and the Latin word side, meaning killing or extermination. And, and, uh, and to, 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 to just give a background of the name, how it comes to, 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 to be turned into international law. In December 1948, 9th of December to be, uh, to be correct, 70 years ago, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted Resolution 96, affirming the name genocide as a crime denying the right, I quote, the right of existence of a group in the same fashion that homicide was the denial of the right to exist of an individual. Three years later, in January 1951, the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crimes of Genocide came, to, came into force, asserting that genocide is a crime under international law. The Genocide Convention foc focuses on two fundamental elements causing serious physical or mental harm to members of a particular group. Just to just to uh, elaborate on this a little. Let me let yeah. me just interrupt you here because so I mean you are taking a, a legal approach. I mean you're basically saying that genocide. We have to understand that genocide is um, at a certain level uh, a legal concept. It has a particular history, right? But it's a legal context uh, concept. It's a it's a concept that has emerged at a very specific period in time in international law and that emergence i suppose this is what you are suggesting has certain implications but how does the concept relate to your own specific fieldwork in iraq you know how does it connect to the situation in iraq you know um, could you elaborate a little bit on that uh, yes but i i was thinking to um, you know when i the way i started I, I thought of giving the background of the concept okay and how uh, it has come to be concern of scholars worldwide and led to the formation of different institutions uh, research institutes worldwide uh, uh, studying why genocide happens how it happens what it does and 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 this, uh, this, is, um, this is partly based on the legal, uh, on the, the genocide, the United Nations Genocide Convention of 1948. Um, and Lemkin's own analysis, uh, you know, um, covers more than what the international law has, has come to cover. So I just wanted to, uh, to highlight also the politics of the drafting, the, the, um, uh, the Genocide Convention, which excluded the cultural, uh, cu which, which is now uh, understood as culture side, I mean, the, the distraction of cultures, or the politicide, um, distraction of political institutions, but also the ways in which um, the target uh, people or the target place are um, subjected to um, uh, change of names. So this changing of names of place of people was also common during uh, the Nazi time with, with this notion of Germanization of what world mm -hmm. that, uh, that was dominant or fundamental to the operational plans. 
but also to the colonial time that, that happened in, um, in uh, the continent of Africa, but also in the, in the uh, North America. So what you're so, saying is that according to the UN Convention, a genocide is basically anything that involves the killing of a group of people and does not necessarily concern or does not involve uh, issues of culture, does not involve issues of politics, you know, if political institutions are destroyed, that does not count as genocide, that's what you're saying. Actually, what, uh, what I can say is that uh, genocide, the ways in which it is legalized and has come to be interpreted and read, uh, we can say it means uh, people killing, mm-hmm. ethnic cleansing or killing, religious cleansing or killing, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the other um, category is uh, racial killing. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, uh, the draft of the United Nations Genocide Convention, uh, it was also a move beyond the notion of crimes against humanity mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Since then, it has come to act as the international legal translation, interpreting acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as, for example, this is fundamental, Article 2 is suggesting killing members of the group, this is the target group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, (laughs) imposing measures intended to prevent birth within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another another group. And Article 3 follows that, that genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, and complicity in genocide shall be punishable. So all, mm-hmm. all, those, all the member states of the Genocide Convention are responsible to act when they know an act of genocide is, is going to take place or, or is about to take place. Mm-hmm. So they are responsible to act in, uh, in preventing these acts. Right, so yeah, and, but how, how does this uh, sort of more historical approach to the coming into being of the concept, of the legal concept of genocide relates to your own project in uh, Iraq? Mm-hmm. I mean, why, why do you think that it's very important for us to get a sense of the origins of the concept of genocide in order to make sense of what happened in Iraq in the last, uh, in the last uh, you know, decade? Well, political violence is, uh, is entrenched in the um, involvement of what is now called the Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from the violence of the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, the British and the Americans that are yet to be accounted for, certain interpretations of religion are a constitutive part of what I can now mention six separate genocidal violence in Iraq of, of the 20th century. Um, and 21st century, in fact. Uh, the the Sumail massacre against the Assyrians, an Iraqi Christian minority, on August 11, 1933. This happened while Iraq was a British colony. Mm-hmm. How many people died? Uh, it, it, is hard, it is hard to, to, uh, to really detail the numbers of people died. 
but but what matters to within also the genocide, uh, the the legal definition of genocide is really the number of people killed doesn't really matter. It is it is the intention or the plans that matters. And and Al Farhud became also the name of public hanging, massacre, and violent disposition of the Iraqi Jews in early 1941, the Dujail massacre targeting the Iraqi Shiites between 82 and 85. Al-Anfal operations, which I will return to now, targeting mainly the Kurds, but also observing Yazidis and Christians between 87 and 1991. Shia religious cleansing of Sunnis in 2006 and 2007. This is also during a time of fundamental tr political transition in Iraq, following the, the American and British invasion of Iraq. And the Sinjar operation, which I have also studied, of the Islamic State against the Yazidis, a religious minority in, in, in northern Iraq. And it's extraordinary violence against Christians, Caucasians, and Shabaks between 2014 and 17. So it is, uh, you know, as, as you can see, um, uh, the history of, of modern Iraq is a history of violence dating back to the Assyrians and, and Babylonians. And, and, and Chengiz Khan's uh, uh, complete distraction and burning and violence. But in my, in my case, was one decision simply was uh, that, that Al-Anfal um, uh, genocide, which came to be recognized as genocide during 2007 and 2010 Baghdad trials after the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So this was completely under research anthropologically and ethnographically. So I, um, I entered a, a place that I simply did not know. I, I had been to that place in 2010, and then I returned in 2011 to conduct this vast ethnographic study on what happened during a landfall. So my focus... Are there any other ethnographic studies of genocide? Because, you know, it seems to me that it's such a difficult subject to do ethnographic research on. I mean, you yourself use the term untranslatable yes. to refer to, um, you know, practices of genocide. So, you know, to tell us a little bit about difficulties that you encountered during your field work in Iraq. Which part of Iraq did you go to? Well, I was... How did you select your field site? I, um, I, um, they, the, 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 the ways in which this anfall is remembered and shared was a target of my ethnography. So how people remember it, how they share it as a stories, mm -hmm. um, and how they insist that language is not enough to deal with this question. So, according to the to what they remember, they say, or the dominant narrative, which is political fundamentally, is four thousand villages were destroyed. So in my case, um, I had this uh, anthropological obligation to to arrive at these spaces, many of which did not do not exist now. These villages and others, you find few families still living there. Uh, so I arrived at this space almost um, 25 years later and started living in, in the villages and traveling so in this them. this is in 2011, yeah? Uh, 2012. 12, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, my, my, 
my primary source was uh, talking to survivors, direct survivors, or descendant of survivors, and try to see how they remember and how they, as I discussed it, translate this violence. Because to me, to me, uh, the question of genocidal violence uh, is something uh, that is not easy to translate, meaning uh, try to describe or share with others through language. So in this case, I, I focus on stories, but I also focus on what, on literatures that, that people write, some, some um, novelists have started writing about it, focus on films, focus on artworks, but also focus on the ways in which Alanfal has come to be remembered within certain museums that are also post-2003 constructions. And I see, um, for example, the, um, uh, the museums as, uh, in this case, I play with, do not uh, really play, but I apply, try to, to disturb this notion of genocide by focusing on how this law, once a violence is declared genocide, it leads to the construction of genocides. So museum becomes a site of a people, of a nation, of a race. But also uh, slowly, uh, uh, slowly takes the nation into creates a nation that must love itself, which I call genophilia. Mm -hmm. So there is a there is, the the law itself in this case is productive, but in my case the law is. Um, is dealing with this violence, the ways in which the, the survivors deal with it, and they are both a, pro a, a process of translation. Because the violence is not accessible to us, and language becomes, uh, language or art or museum becomes our only ways of returning to these violence. Sorry, let, let me just interrupt you, just to clarify. What you're saying is that there are two sets of translations that you're interested in, or that you know your work deals with. On the one hand, you have legal translations of genocide, which you take to be very important because, of course, international law plays a central role in mobilizing um, humanitarian aid, for example, or in mobilizing various kinds of infrastructures of support. Uh, or, or, or violence as well. And then there is another set of translations, which is the one that is usually not really researched on, which is the level of survivors' own accounts of what happened. At both levels, uh, violence is in many ways inaccess inaccessible, right? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, it's spoken of, it's described, but we cannot really uh, we cannot really touch it. <laughs> yeah. We cannot really entirely grasp it. Uh, it's it's non-graspable. It's beyond uh, to a very large extent. It's beyond what can be imagined. Um, and so, what did you find interesting about the contrast between these two sets of translations? Well, the legal um, the the legal. Uh translation, as I said, is a global translation. Yeah. So obviously the Kurds were absolutely interested and they worked hard. Um, not only that it was uh, that international law, the Genocide Convention was applied during the legal procedures in Iraq. Not that it recognized 
the, the a landfall was recognized on the basis of that law and the Nuremberg principles. Uh, but they also wanted the uh, Europe in general and ICC to also recognize it. So there is, uh, everywhere now, there is uh, a kind of um, um, an appeal to an internet, to a global voice. So, so when a landfall was, cons as I discussed it and studied it, the moment it was, con uh, it was recognized as genocide, the whole uh, process of memory shifted. So I also discuss how the recognition itself not only gives it a global voice, but it also transforms the ways in which people remember what happened. But as you, as you were, were uh, rightly saying, what the anthropologists do in this case, and I have done, uh, as many anthrop other anthropologists have done in Cambodia or in Rwanda, in, in, um, uh, in Guatemala, for example, uh, the, the, the focus is on survivors. What is it exactly that they are saying? And for them, you know, the challenge of the anthropologist is not only, you know, to be subjected to the stories of violence that, that the anthropologist cannot control or cannot deny, uh, but it's also how the anthropologist can possibly try to understand what the survivors are saying. So this is, this is a fundamental challenge. And what, in my case, what I found is that what the survivors have, have come to remember and say is slowly penetrated with this political narrative of violence that is constructed within museums by artists and novelists. So the, 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 the media uh, circulation of these narratives have slowly come to marginalize the survivors uh, experiences that they try to articulate with language, but also um, try to force the survivors to apply and speak with, within, within this, uh, this current political narrative. Can you give an example of this media narrative? And, um, and what kind of museums and artists are we talking about? Are we talking about museums and artists that are based in Iraq? that are based in international, global contexts. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I'm trying, to, um, I'm trying to kind of render what you're telling us uh, in, in more concrete terms. Kind of um, in, in this case, uh, uh, media is, is multiple. For example, films, uh, artworks. There, there, are, uh, there are some artists who do abstract paintings as a representative of, of violence in general. But there is also another one who has um, Osman Ahmed, with whom I have worked. Uh, he, uh, his insistence is that during this, uh, this Anfal genocide, um, there were no possibilities for photographers or general, uh, gen journalists to enter and photograph what happened. So what he's doing is now he has interviewed survivors and based on what he has heard, he is drawing the stories. Mm -hmm. So he's drawing how people were, were how their village were uh, surrounded, how they were arrested and transported, and then what happens when they are in these detention centers. But also photographs, uh, photographs of families or from archival uh, family photographs that do not belong to the landfall genocide itself, but pre landfall genocide, like family photographs, the ways in which they are exhibited. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, many of the, the family photographs are no longer there. They disappeared or never returned or massacred. So these photographs becomes not only a testimony, but also becomes a kind of visual evidence of what happened. So because when we enter a museum, we are subjected to a story that is multiplied, either through books, um, as pictures, as sculptures, uh, but also the ways in which the, 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 uh, the museum is curated, is designed from within itself. It is like entering a museum of genocide is not, uh, is not only genocide at the same time, but also a site that, that really touches on the core of uh, modernity's infrastructures of annihilation, but also one's own humanity. I mean, uh, genocide uh, in principle is, is an attack on, on hu humans' humanity. So this is this become a a question for me that to not to move beyond this idea that genocide can be particular in particular context that the, that the Germans for example had a culture of killing or the Arabs had a culture of annihilation or the or in Rwanda there is a uh, inter-ethnic culture of extermination to me it became uh, a question of human condition a human condition that also involves the what I call modernity's infrastructure of annihilation. Tell me a little bit about the infrastructure of annihilation. What exactly do you mean by that? Uh, Are you saying that modernity is inherently violent? You know, I'm saying this because you know I'm thinking about um, uh, 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 linguists like uh, Steven Pinker, you know, who has written a, a, a book, extremely influential book, in which is sort of contesting uh, this idea that modernity is, um, you know, has brought about destruction. Uh, you know, in certain, in certain sectors of the humanities and social scientists in the last uh, three to four decades, I think that we have been witnessing a lot of critiques of modernity. Uh, you know, uh, of modernity and its failures, in a way. Its failures to provide, to support, to create um, conditions of, um, that will enable uh, the creation of a better um, living circumstances, right? So there has been a lot of criticism of modernity, and Pinker has been sort of arguing contrary to this idea that, um, you know, uh, modernity has not entailed a, an increase of violence, but to the opposite, you know, it has led to a significant uh, decline of violence uh, that is, you know, uh, violence defined as, um, for example, in terms of the number of killings of um, human beings, human beings killing other human beings. He's arguing that throughout the last few hundred years of the process of modernity, not just in you know, the so-called West, but you know, globally speaking and generally, despite the fact that we had two major world wars that have themselves generated a huge amount of killings and so on and so forth, is arguing that 
despite all that, despite all those, you know, worldwide and so on and so forth, if you actually look at numbers, you know, available statistics, try to compile available statistics, you know, there is some, there are estimates suggesting that actually, you know, by and large, violence has been on the decline. Uh, you know, that to some extent, perhaps, I think that Pinker would argue that, that genocide has been also, uh, genocidal practices have also been uh, declining. Uh, but you're talking about modernity um, in, in highly negative terms. I mean, you're talking about uh, modernity's infrastructures of annihilation. Um, Could you clarify your position here in relation to Pinker's argument? Mm, I, I don't follow a kind of um, a specific definition of what modernity is. Uh, and in my case, it is specific cases. For example, um, Auschwitz itself, uh, the concentration camp, the ways in which it was designed, it was designed to be exterminatory. It was designed to exterminate people uh, in a way that it is not uh, even imaginable to us who, have, who, who, can, who cannot experience what happened. So one of, one of these issues is, in this context of Auschwitz, two fundamental things are involved that are transformative. Transformative in the sense that they transform human beings into entities that, that are part of this annihilation. Weapons and bureaucracy. The ways in which bureaucracy uh, organizes the modern state, but also um, uh, organizes genocidal violence. In the case of, for example, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, in particular, or Max Weber, this is also discussed, but in Zygmunt Bauman's case, which I follow in advance, is in fact um, the genocide, what we call genocide, and how we have, we come, we have come to experience it, is impossible without a modern bureaucracy. But it's also the question of what he calls advanced science, and in this case, weapon. The kind of weapons that we use, uh, like chemical uh, weapons in Auschwitz, it, chemical weapons were also used in Iraq. It was used, for example, in different parts, in different parts, and in different villages in northern Iraq, in the Kurdistan region, but also in the town of Halabja. Uh, so the the you know a cocktail of chemical weapons were used, and, and this saying... the 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 scale the scale of this death, uh, the number of people which they claim to be five thousand people to have died within that day, and there are still hundreds of others suffering from the effects of chemical weapons which I am studying. So but... this this uh, modernity, I mean this aspect of it. This advanced science, this advanced science dimension of modernity is something that did not exist, for example, if we focus on how the Romans uh, destroyed Carthage or how the uh, Babylonians and Assyrians attack, attacked each other and killed each other. Or right, you're not saying that under, Roman, under the Roman Empire there were no mass killings, of course there were. But you're saying that uh, modernity and its various scientific, technological, and legal infrastructures have allowed for the develop a new ways of killing masses. Is that what you're saying? Unimaginable and unprecedented ways. If right. we, for example, focus in particular on 
on concentration camps. Right, so, so basically in response to Steven Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, that, that's the title of his book, what you're saying is that you're not so much interested in whether there has been a decline or not in violence and warfare killings. I mean, you're not interested in this sort of, you know, were there more killings before as opposed to now? But rather you're interested in the ways that mass killings are organized and in which ways, uh, you know, what kinds of forms are mobilized under modern states to organize mass killings. Exactly. I mean... I must make also this point that those genocides, I mean, of, of 20th century and also 21st century, are never the work of one modern state, and never the something that one nation state is capable of. So there is always, um, uh, when it comes to the acts of annihilations, it involves other states beyond uh, the borders of one nation state. I mean, we can discuss uh, the ways in which uh, the Shoah or the Holocaust happened, or the ways in which the Rwandan genocide happened, or the ways in which many countries around the world provided Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party with weapons and chemical weapons. So in th this is part of this modernity's infrastructure of violence that, that in fact, eliminates the border of, of the nation-state and also makes, makes it possible the idea of coming up, coming out, because the, the violence has shifted. Now we, we are in an in a age of drone killing. Huh? Uh, drones kill and, and, and there is no relationship, there is no human relationship to humans killing, you know? It's, it's all technological and te technology is dominant in this case. But, but the case with, with uh, the cognitive psychologist, uh, Steven Pinker, is that he seems, uh, he seems of course, uh, to, to, to come out with another declaration. We had, as you know, Huntington's clash of civilization, uh, Fukuyama's the end of history, and it's also the end of violence. We can, we can try to understand his his, uh, his kind of uh, quantitative assessment of decline of violence as the end of violence. And uh, uh, to, 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 to just uh, finish with this is this question that, you know, to quote from him, he, he writes, the world has made spectacular progress in every single measure of human well-being. And, and the, the fundamental the fundamental cause of this is what he calls the recursive combinatorial power of the human mind. So to my understanding, it is the same human mind that created the chemical weapons, which we know what it can do. It has created the drones, and it has created the incredible nuclear bombs, the future of which we cannot assume. So I, you know, my response here would be is, in fact, we cannot come out with an ultimate calculation and conclusion of whether violence has declined or not, because the future remains open. And, and, and no one can assume what kind of future human beings will be living in when it comes to this technological advancement. I mean, on a scale that is never imagined before in human history. That's a very nice way to wrap up this podcast. Thank you so much, Fabio. You Thank just, you. 
You just listened to uh, Dr. Fazil Moradi, a member of the Law Organization Science and Technology Research Network and an associate at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology. Thank you for listening.